When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think of how much of your suffering is happening because how your present moment experience is unfolding is not how, how you want it to be happening. So there's this thing in which you start to like get more and more uh, equanimity. It's, equanimity is the smoothness and the, the lack of bracing and freezing. And, that, and that, that open allowing starts to kind of trickle down into the nervous system. And it, and it begins to create this more fluid and fluent uh, ease and relationship with uh, your own experience. That was author Jeff Warren, and you're listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. All right, so we finally have managed to find a time to all three get together to meet, and I wanted to start off by hearing Debbie about some of the exciting news that you have to share. Well, that's right. I have some news. I am starting a part-time private practice here in Denver, Colorado. Um, so I am. this is something I've been wanting to do for quite a while, and so I'm really excited to get it off the ground. I'm learning a lot by starting my own business, and I'll be offering psychotherapy consultation and training focusing on acceptance and commitment therapy and other forms of cognitive behavioral therapy. And so if anyone's interested, you can check it out. You can link to it through our website, um, or you can go directly to a, a website that is a collective I'm part of called impactpsychcolorado.com. Debbie, it's such a great group of people that you've gathered together for this Impact Colorado. I'm so, when I read the lineup of the people that are going to be in this group, I was so, so, so thrilled. So I think that any of the psychologists that are listed there, and of course you, uh, are just such top uh, ACT practitioners. It's really exciting to see you guys launching this. Well, thank you. And it's been a lot of fun to make it a collaborative effort. So thank you so much. And Diana, you have some news as well. Yes. Yeah, so I'm doing a workshop in Santa Barbara. It's actually a wellness day that's going to incorporate some work, uh, experiential components of ACT in combination with yoga, sound healing, and nature connection up at Goodland Organics Coffee Farm. It's going to be a very lovely day up in Goleta, California. So you can check that out on my website, which is drdianahill.com. In the field of psychology, meditation science and practice has been on trend for a number of years, but I've always had a hard time following the trend, behaviorally speaking. Um, but a couple of years ago, I picked up a wonderful book called 10% Happier that was written by an anchorman journalist, Dan Harris. And it was the perfect match for what I was looking for because he approaches meditation in this fairly skeptical, kind of irreverent, um, really personal way. And it was this open opening into meditation that I hadn't really seen before. Recently, he uh, joined up with two co-authors, Jeff Warren and Carly Adler, to put out a new book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. And I was lucky enough to get Jeff Warren to come on our show for an interview about meditation. Um, and it was a really fun experience because I think he and his co-authors in Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics approach meditation with a really different uh, kind of attitude, one that is very real life and uh, personable and accessible for people who don't necessarily have time or interest in making meditation the core of their entire worlds, but want to sort of uh, 
take advantage of a lot of the benefits that we know come from meditation. And I know that you guys listened to this uh, interview that I did with Jeff Warren and found some inspiration yourself. So I was curious what you've tried since you've listened to, to that conversation that I had with him. Well, Yael, um, you know, I really enjoyed the episode. And as you reveal during the interview, I relate more to the fidgety part than the skeptics. I think I've had enough good experience with mindfulness practice and meditation that I'm I'm not really a skeptic, but I have a hard time just carving out the time to do it and kind of stay, staying with the practice. I think I get really easily distracted or pulled in different directions. And so I have done some mindfulness practice since I listened to the episode. And I think actually some of the advice that he gave around knowing that that temptation to get up is and, and get distracted is going to arise and just sitting with it and kind of staying with the practice, even when that, that happens, that really was a helpful way to look at it. I think I'm neither a skeptic nor a fidgeter, but I still struggle with keeping up a meditation practice. And I actually, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is how meditation practice, and I think you even mentioned this in the interview, Yael, has become another to-do or another self-improvement project. And I'm actually reading this really lovely book by Pema Chodron right now called The Wisdom of No Escape. And it's her Dharma talks over a month-long retreat that she offered. So each, each day is a different Dharma talk, each chapter. And in that book, she talks about something called the subtle aggression of self-improvement. Have you guys heard of this? I love it. The subtle aggression of self-improvement. This idea that when we get on the self-improvement bandwagon, we're actually doing a disservice to ourselves. And I think what I'm, the approach I'm trying to make more with my meditation practice is that it's not about something I want to get better at, but really just make friends with who I am right now. And and also just notice when I'm doing my meditation, how my mind, like how it just shows me how my mind is always on the run. <clears throat> I'm constantly, constantly, constantly on the run and trying to avoid or adjust or shift something in the present moment. And just that skill of being right here right now. And it's not about trying to improve anything about it, just how it is. Yeah, I agree with that so much, Diana, and I think that is definitely one of the reasons why I was put off for a long time from meditation, and one of the things that I really love about the approach that Jeff Warren and his co-authors take. And Jeff talks about a whole host of other things, too, that meditation can offer for folks interested in trying it out. So if you're interested in hearing a little bit more um, from a guy who has a wicked sense of humor, is very relatable, and has an awesome Canadian accent, we hope that you'll enjoy this episode about meditation for fidgety skeptics. In this episode, I'll be talking with Jeff Warren, who is an author, a meditation expert, and instructor, founder of the Consciousness Explorers Club, and uh, recently the co-author of Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics with Ingerman Dan Harris and Carly Adler. Um, so I'm really excited to get to ask Jeff some of my burning questions about meditation, and we're going to dive right in. So this may sound a little bit basic, but I want to start off by asking you, how do we even define meditation? How do we know we're doing it? What is meditation? Yeah, I mean, this is what it's, it's, uh, I can respond to that. I would say it's a little bit hard to generalize because there's so many different ways in which meditation is conceived of and talked about and defined. I would say the absolute essence of meditation, the base, is just being okay with your own existence. You know, I know that sounds very general, but insofar as you can sit and notice your own being, notice like this is me, this is my life, this is my body, and let yourself be there and accept that and feel the kind of, the settling that happens with that, I would say that's the ground of practice. And so there are some people who naturally have that as part of their, how they are. They just, they got good role models. They just figured it out. Or the people who recognize that there are certain places, like when they go and hang out in nature and that that kind of naturally happens. So I would say that's the kind of like ground. But then if you wanted to go a little bit more, I would say, okay, well then formally a meditation, meditation is sort of like in the classic meditative state is just basically being concentrated on something. So, so that's where I was saying before about then so sitting and just being, noticing the breath, being okay with your being and just noticing the breath or being okay with your being and going for a walk and noticing the birds and listening to the birds and, and don't fool yourself because if your mind is going in 50 different tracks and only a little part of you is noticing the birds, then you're not really practicing. You know, it's about really trying to 
converge all your attention on one thing. So that's what concentration practice is. And then the next tier up, I would say, if, if you, now you're really getting the stream of a kind of deep mindfulness practice, is you're okay with your being, you're practicing being concentrated on something, and on top of it, you know, those mindfulness skills are there. So the mindfulness skills are the concentration, they're the, they're the uh, noticing what's going on in your experience, being okay with things, letting them go. It's the concentration, clarity, equanimity. So if you, you can go for a walk and deliberately be concentrated, clear, and equanimous, then you're 100% in that deepest level meditation, not even the kind of more accessible end. I was saying that's deep meditation. If you can, in an art practice, you're doodling, but instead of just being unconscious, you're noticing the experience of how the, 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 the your pen, the ballpoint pen rolls along the page in this very pleasurable way. And you're noticing like, so you're really connected to the sensations. You're concentrated. You're letting yourself just flow into the drawing. You're not letting yourself, you're not getting coagulated with too much overthinking. You're just, there's an equanimity quality into, in the way that you're engaging with the practice. So you're clear, you're calm, you're concentrated. That is absolutely a meditation. This is why people get liberated doing calligraphy practice. It's why people, that's why you hang out with a Qigong master. They're just doing these movements, but they're doing exactly what I said. They're, they're, they're concentrated on the movement. They're noticing where there's tiny ways in which they might be interfering with themselves, where they're struggling and fighting, and they, and they just, instead, they're trying to make things very smooth. They're, they're tuned into the qualities of energy and breath inside their body. They're absolutely inside a moving meditation. So I would say to the listeners and to you, where in your life does that sound, does it sound like you would love to try that out in yeah. motion? You know, what thing do you do, whether it's walking to work, can you really go into your body and feel the, the little calibration of balance and movement and kind of and notice your embodiedness and enjoy the being of that and be concentrated on your movements, you know? Or do you, because, and then this is the next thing. So you, you find somewhere in your life where it's going to be the formal practice, whether it's sitting or in motion or in activity. And then the, it truly becomes a practice when you start to think about how you can spread those qualities out into all the other parts of your life. So it's like you got to be, be interested in like, okay, now I've got this thing that I do when I hang out, when I do my art practice, when I do my creative work, when I do my, my physical activity, when I'm hanging out with a human being, when I'm in meditation. These are all, I can make that all kind of formal practice. But then you start to get curious about, well, how can I take this and sort of spread out the benefits and the insights? Because eventually in a practice, you're always practicing. Um, yeah. I hope that makes sense. I try to make that a comprehensive answer. Yeah, no, I, I, loved, I love that answer. And I'll also say that one of my favorite examples in the book of a meditation practice is the one that you gave to Dan Harris's wife for the, uh, like watching reality TV at the end of the day, because it's just so relatable. Like it's, you know, you can build it into a time at the end of the day that you're just, you're just done, but you can be done and sink into the couch with um, a real mindful attention to how the couch feels against your back and how good it feels to kind of let go at the end of the day. It doesn't have to be um, a, a tight sort of rigid practice. It can be wherever, wherever you are. And for me, I love that because, um, well, and, and I had sort of um, sent you a note before we, uh, before the recording that among the three co-hosts of this podcast, one of us is a very dedicated meditator and then me and Debbie are, are more sporadic. And I think that just knowing that I can kind of build it in, in this, in this sort of on the go way, I think really opens me up because as, as, as somebody who's really interested in the science of meditation, you know, I buy it, I totally buy it, but it's more sort of the, the, how do I do it? And I think that that is, you know, certainly a main focus of this meditation for fidgety skeptics book, because, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with people that are just living their ordinary and extraordinary lives and, and try, sort of trying to fit it in, in ways that make a lot of sense. And so I love that idea of, you know, you, you find something that you do on a regular basis and you figure out how to bring your attention, how to bring your clarity, how to bring that sense of equanimity into it and then allow it to kind of build out from there. I think that's a, a much more accessible approach for me and Definitely. I think for a lot of people. And, 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 and recognize that it's baby steps that just happen in the moment. You know, at the beginning, it may just be give yourself five minutes to chill and relax and be okay with your life. So you're just laying, just give yourself the time to deliberately lay on the couch and just be and feel your body breathing. And that's okay. That is so healing and important. And it, it can begin there. And as you begin to realize, oh, this is really good for me. 
I feel more space and more in my life when I do this, you start to get more uh, strategic about, well, can I bring a little bit more of this out? How can I simplify? What, what can I simplify in my life so I can do a little bit more of this? Or, and, and then you look, and so then it builds up and it gets a little bit more intentional. And then you're like, oh, how can I, maybe I'll bring this, this I can see when I'm, when I'm deliberately being clear about what's going on, that that's also helpful. So maybe I'll bring a little bit of more of this in. So you slowly begin to, for me, it, it meditation built up over time. You know, I started, you know, I mean, I kind of went and jumped into it more in a hardcore way, uh, but like the benefits built up gradually over time. And I started to see more and more where I could just apply it in small ways in other parts of my life. The benefit of having a city practice was I could, it gave me a place to notice what was helping and then I could apply it in other places. But I think just don't start big. Make it, and the more tension you have about this whole thing, the more it's not going to work anyway. It's right. going in the opposite direction. So just be chill. Just sit back. <laughs> if you want to do this, just relax in your, in, your, in your bed when you wake up in the morning for 10 minutes and just feel the warm coffee or the mug of coffee in your hands or just feel the feeling of breathing and just try to enjoy being a human being. Because guess what? Tick tock. <laughs> I think you talked about, you touched on in the book, but I would love to talk with you more about it is um so the, one of the co-hosts Debbie and I were chatting about what her struggles are and she she talks about how when she starts a meditation all of a sudden she's just like off doing something else she gets distracted and pretty soon she finds herself making dinner calling a friend and checking her email sort of without even realizing it and then and then she's got to go on to the next thing what do you what do you recommend for that? Uh, well, first, have a sense of humor about it. <laughs> <laughs> it is <isn't laughs> it's hilarious how it happens. Yeah. Squirrel, welcome to the squirrel consciousness of humanity, and not just, yeah. but particularly of you. You know, so I just first have, find it hilarious that that's how it is, and I think if you get upset or angry, either the, the normal response is you get really mad at yourself. Oh, I suck at this. And, uh, and then you've got all this tension and anger you're bringing to the practice, which is actually working at counterproductive or, or, and, and, or you just abandon the whole thing as you're like, Oh, this is helpless. This is, I'm useless at this. So the first thing to do is to just you know, notice that that's your disposition and have a sense of humor about it and say, that's okay. And, and as every meditation teacher in the world will say, the practice is beginning again. Beginning so it's, again. it's noticing that you've been distracted and it's like, and smiling and having a sense of humor about it. And say, okay, what did I get distracted by? That's the mindfulness. Oh, I got distracted by this thought about dinner. Okay, I know this is one of the rackets that I get into thinking about what I'm going to do for dinner. Then you kind of go back to your breath, and you and you come back to it like it's a home base. You sink into it a little bit, and you try to notice the kind of pleasure of it, or the, the or whatever your object is of just being there. And then you get pulled away again, kind of look again. Oh yeah, what's going on? And the more and so every time you come back, you're building concentration. But yeah. also every time you go, what's going on? you get a little more insight and what you start to see is there's really four or five things going on. There's usually like a, just a few routines that kind of habit patterns in your mind that you get into. There's the list maker, there's the critic, there's the uh, catastrophist, whatever yours are. And you start to recognize what those are. And then once you can know, know that they're there, you don't go into them quite as easily. So, and in fact, you can start to do this really smart thing where at the beginning of the practice, you do a little inventory. What do I know is going to distract me? Mm. This is my, my wife taught me how to do this. This is uh, Kula Dasa talks about this. He's another great teacher. Like, what's a little inventory of what I know is going to distract me? Okay, I know I'm going to, at some point, A, think I'm not doing this right and decide I need to change up the technique and, and make a new modification, which is bogus. All I need to do is just feel the breath and that's cool and just be okay with that. But so I know that at one point I'm going to think I'm not doing it right. I know I'm going to start thinking about what else I need to do that's more important. So I'm going to have this thing come in here. I know, you know, X, Y, Z, these are the things I'm pretty sure are going to distract me. And you kind of ahead of time, make a little, make that list to yourself, kind of know what it is. And then when you're doing it, you're not surprised by it. You, and then you make your commitment to sort of stay with it. It happens. You're not surprised. You go back. That is a real help. All the things I'm describing can really help with that. And just yeah, that seems it. like it would help you to more effectively set your intentions if you sort of had an idea of what could get you off track and, and, and then be able to kind of plan accordingly. Exactly. You sort of say, okay, I'm going to make, uh, my intention is to make a commitment to my breath, say, as an object or to sounds or whatever, to the feeling of the body or just the, just the being there-ness. Um, and uh, and these, are the, these are the inventory of things I know could distract me. I'm highlighting those with like an existential highlighter so I know they can happen. So therefore, you're that much more, because it's a lot about how you prime yourself at the beginning. So you're now you're more, uh, you're just more mature and aware of what could happen. And when it happens, 
you're just not lost in the unconsciousness of it. You, you come back to awareness more quickly and then you go back. And then it's just, it's a numbers game. It's the more you, the more you do it, you know, and, and I would say the more, more frequently is more important than longer sits. You, you, the more you get used to this part of yourself and you slowly build up that muscle. Yeah. But, you know, as a distractible person, you'll probably always have a certain distractibility. And the, the, the smart life move there is to, is to acknowledge that and, and, and notice what's beneficial about that. Like, you know, the benefits are that you're very fun to be around often because you're like a golden retriever. You're just like, you're back here you are again. You know, you don't carry grudges because you're incapable of it. You know, you're in the moment. <laughs> and so there's things about having a kind of ADD profile or you're creative, you know, that are very lovely. So you kind of, you got to kind of just, you know, try to uh, kind of recognize the good and celebrate the good. And be more mature and aware about where the challenges are. And then and within that framework, the practice can really help. Yeah. I love this quote from, I, I drew this out of the book. This is a quote, I think, from your one of your parts of the book. Um, and you write, don't worry if you suck at concentrating. Sometimes I do too. You're simply exploring what it might be like to suck marginally less. <laughs> and I love that because it yeah. sort of, you know, it sort of reduces like the pressure that you put on yourself and it really just becomes, you know, an exercise in, in, as opposed to an expectation that you could fail. <laughs> exactly. And also, baby, people are so hilarious. They put up, they're like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I got to be awesome at it. And you put yourself at this super high ideal, this high yes. standard. The second you're not living up to this like imagined Buddhist ideal, like that you're the Buddha under the tree, like getting enlightened, then it's like, forget it. That's crazy. It's not like you're going to, if you want to become an Olympic athlete, you're going to, it's like, you're like, forget it. The first time out skating, I want to become an Olympic speed skater. But if, the first time out, I don't know how to skate. Well, forget it. It's not worth it. You know, you got to yeah. build up. And yeah. so, and, and, the, and the key is to like, enjoy the process of building up. Enjoy and that's what happens. You enjoy the journey. You start to enjoy like, oh my God, it's so nice just to do nothing because I'm so freaking tired. You know, and yeah. I'm just like running this rat. I'm just on this like hamster wheel all the time. And I just want to chill. And just to be able to say that actually chilling is a deeply wise and healing thing to do. It's not something you need to feel bad about. It's something that's actually really good for you. That can be where it starts. And it's so helpful. You know? So helpful. Yeah. So I wanted to turn and talk a little bit about um, the book itself, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, which actually features a lot of you in it and, and sort of your journey and your personal relationship with Dan Harris. How, how much of a surprise was that and how did it feel to have so much of your personal life included? It feels unusual. It, it wasn't <laughs> what I expected. I, I, or I wasn't even interested in it, you know, so I, I wanted, I mean, I was always very motivated to try to help as many people as I could with what I was figuring out. Just you know, I basically inherited that from my mom, like this idea of being productive. So I like that. I've always liked that. But I didn't realize that the most helpful thing I could do would be to just be honest in public in a way. Yeah. And so sometimes it feels very, um, you feel very vulnerable, you feel very exposed. And um, uh, I don't mind that people know things about me. I'm a very private person. Like I tend to be, everyone says everyone knows everything about me anyway, all my friends, because I just, I basically wear all my, I don't, I have no ability to dissemble, you know? Um, so there's, I always had that, but the, it is a little strange uh, that, that all these people know things about you, especially for me, more the mental health struggles. And those are yeah. kind of private things that I barely talk to my friends about. And also you're kind of in the middle of figuring it out. I mean, this is the thing. It's like somehow there's this idea that if you're out there teaching meditation or indeed a therapist or you're anywhere in the mental health field that you must have, had it, have it figured out, but you are in process too. And I'm going through my ups and downs and understandings and insights and I'm changing my understanding of how I think about practice as I'm going. I'm curious, like when you set out on this book writing project with Dan Harris, did you know that it was did you have a sense that it was going to be so much about you and your relationship and sort of, you know, your own process in, in all of this? No. I mean, we kind of had an idea. We, we, from the beginning, we wanted to make meditation relatable and we wanted to be honest about how we got into it and what our own challenges were. We kind of said that at the beginning, but we didn't actually, it's like, it, I didn't actually think that that would really truly happen. In the sense that, like, a real conflict emerged in the writing of the book between Dan and I, in the sense around our styles, 
you know, his own impatience and his certain things about how he was started to come to the fore, which he very graciously and, and in a very, you know, beautiful way kind of own, talks about and owns up to that. Dan's really good at that. But it also happened for me too. Like my distractibility, my kind of hyper-focus, you know, the, the, the flip side of an ADD temperament is I also have this sort of obsessive hyper-focus side where I just like, because I'm so scared of losing the plot, when I find a plot, I just grab onto it. Often it's the wrong plot. So I was very fixated around certain things in writing the book. And, um, and, and I'd also, I just, I'm all over the place. So I'm like, I, every new thing I think is awesome. It's like a new novel. I'm bringing, hey, look at this. And so it just like the book, like if it was up to me, there wouldn't have been a lot of focus. So he had to really help focus me. And it became very frustrating because he was on a, a deadline and he had a young you know kid at home. And so we ended up having a real... Um, uh, real challenges. And, and then the brilliant move that Dan made was to, okay, well, that's part of the story. And so, and that ended up being very healing for me because all of a sudden now I could be out in a way about, because I had been, I had all these ideals about how I was supposed to be presenting myself, like as anyone would. And I realized that it just deepened my own, my own understanding that all you ever really need to do is just sort of be honest about where you're at. And that actually is the biggest service of all. So it is. It's so powerful that you guys shared um, that part of your journey, that really vulnerable, authentic part of your journey, because I think it is, it's so relatable. And, you know, we all have this idea of how we should present in the world. And here you guys are, you know, these experts in meditation, this teacher, this writer, you know, and with an abundance of knowledge and practice experience. And, you know, you guys too are, are human. And I think sharing that just makes... Um, you know, the humanity come through, but it also makes the practices that and, and sort of gifts that come with meditation um, really shine because I think um, I actually was just listening to a podcast that you guys had done right when the maybe it was right before the book came out on 10% on the 10% happier podcast. And you talked about this, how um, that frustration was actually an opportunity for you to kind of uh, develop some awareness and pop out of your own internal narrative. And, and I think that that really just brings the whole process to life and in terms of like what it offers. No question. I mean, it's no, there's no question that's true. Like you have a general principle around how the mind works and, and you understand those dynamics but it gets, it's, the rubber hits the road in real people and real people's lives. And people need, uh, it, it's like it, you give, it's such a huge service to be able to offer a genuinely relatable, true, you know, personal story. I mean, even just to give a small example, I was actually using the 10% Happier app. Um, I've been using it all this past couple of weeks because there's this big uh, New Year's challenge that they're doing. And so they asked me to be on it as so kind of like a friend for the other people in 10% Happier app. And it's actually been awesome because I've been really exploring the app in a way I hadn't before. And I've been feeling very supported every day when I meditate. I haven't meditated yet today. I'll have to do it after um, seeing all these people there. But as I've been going through the app, they have, they, they, it's really smart the way they design it. Cause they have these little, um, uh, they have these sort of um, very open interviews, different teachers talking about challenges, talking about the teaching part of it. And then they go into doing a practice. So you can go straight to doing the guided practice, or you can hear this little three minute sound bite. And the one I always listened to was about Joseph Goldstein with, with, with Joseph Goldstein, who's one of, I mean, he's sort of one of the great American meditation teachers. He's one of the people who brought it, I'm sure you know, brought it from the East along with Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield and a few other people. And he was talking about how, you know, he was inside this, he was feeling so fearful in his life. And he was talking to his friend Sharon uh, Salzberg about how he was a fearful person and how he's, you know, just such a fearful he has so much fear and it'll take 30 years of psychotherapy before he ever unwinds all this fear. And, and Sharon just turned to him and said, Joseph, fear is just a mind state. And, and it was like this eureka moment, even though he's a deep teacher, he's been at this for years and years and years, he still gets lost inside identifying with this, believing that you're these moods that pass through you are your fate, that they are deep aspects of your character. Uh, when in fact they are just they just come and go, and that's of course one of the great liberating insights you get from an insight practice. And to fact to show that he's still getting trapped in that all the time, and he still needs help to get popped out was for me so. I was like, oh my god, thank god! I just felt so reassured. I mean, that's the nature. You're always going to get, as my teacher would say, you're always get stuck in the small self. The small self always comes back. There's always a way in which we get re-identified with these things in our lives, 
And but then there's a way to get perspective around them. And it's not that you're saying, oh, this is not me. This is just some other, this is some other random stuff. It's not that at all. That is part of you. But it's the, the first insight that happens in practice is really realizing that there's a deeper part of you here. There's a part that's aware that's sort of more empty and that you are more like a, all the things about your personality, your body, mind, they're like a process. They kind of come and go. And, and insofar as you're, you can just let them come and go and not kind of grab onto them, you can find a lot more freedom and room. And then as you get deeper in your practice, see there's a re-understanding that all this is made of awareness too. It's all you, but everything is all you. You know, right. so if you kind of like the so first you kind of realize you're nothing or you're nobody, and then you kind of realize, oh, actually you are that and everything else as well. So in either case, they're both degrees and dimensions of how we start to get free through a traditional insight practice. The the three co-hosts, uh, myself and the two other co-hosts, Debbie and Diana, we all practice a therapy, an evidence-based therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. Oh, yeah. Are you familiar with it? Oh, yeah. I've been really interested in it, actually. I wanted, I've been oh, wanting awesome. to... So you may already be aware of this, but acceptance and commitment therapy is very much in line with this idea that we get entangled with the thoughts and the images that run through our mind and that a lot of the practices that are offered through ACT are very consistent with meditation mindfulness practices insofar as they help us to sort of step away from uh, the thinking and the images and the, the actual you know narratives that run through our minds so that we can develop more flexibility and develop that awareness that like we are greater than just the thoughts that through our, run through our mind or the emotional experiences that we that we you know physiologically uh, notice in happening in ourselves and developing that distance and that awareness and that observing self just gives you a lot more flexibility to make choices that are value consistent as opposed to just reactive. And I think that you guys say that very explicitly, that the practice of meditation really supports this ability to respond instead of react and to develop that kind of flexibility and, and to sort of move away from the entanglements of what's happening in your mind space or, or even in your emotional space. So I really love that. Yeah, I mean, that's how I would, I mean, literally exactly what you said is almost verbatim what I talk about. That's, that is the essence of, or rather that is like part one of two in, an, in a Buddhist insight practice, in a traditional mindfulness practice. There are other practices that we can talk about and how they work that are different. Uh, but the insight practice absolutely is about that sanity piece. It's about being able to disembed from these tight identifications with thought and rumination and experiential loops. And, and feeling loops uh, to get a broader perspective. The deeper place it goes is um, it begins to do that with all experience, not just um, uh, your inner thoughts and urges and feelings, but everything that your entire consciousness is made up of. With this sort of this sort of sensory balloon that we're in, that's constructed by the brain, you know, that does a pretty good job of representing the world. You know, that model of the world. The longer you spend doing insight meditation, you begin to, it's the model of the world you're looking at. And you begin to see that you begin to have a first person experience of the constructed nature of that model. And that sounds like an intellectual insight, and, and it is. But when it becomes an experiential insight, it's very profound and it has a particular effect on your nervous system. It's like the nervous system suddenly tastes. The, 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 the essential ungroundedness of things, but also because in, this, in the fact that it's ungrounded, there are no real threats. The, the, you, know, you could say the oneness of things, the emptiness of things, there's so many ways to talk about it. And there's this enormous uh, sigh of relief that, goes, that feels like it goes into the cellular level almost, like the whole nervous system relaxes its vigilance in a way that is very, very profound. And so as you go deeper into an insight practice, there's this, this continuous series of insights and relaxations and and the nervous system getting more settled as an effect of that downstream of that is that you then identify less with the conditioning patterns so at the beginning you're very deliberately working to not identify with the thinking and the feeling and the way you might say with act as the practice really takes hold in an insight way that becomes sort of it just begins to happen of its own volition you know that sort of take gets it develops its own momentum although as you just as I, we said about joseph and with me with everyone it's not it's not you know, it's not a complete and perfect system. It's always, always there's going to be more to learn. Always there's ways in which you find that you're deluding yourself or you find that you've gone back into identifying with stuff. And so you have to, in Buddhism, they would say guarding the sense gates. Like you have to sort of stay vigilant, not in a, in a hyper vigilant, fearful way, but more in a kind of like 
curious, open, mindful way of, oh yeah, what, what am I getting caught up in right now? What do I believe is true right now? And what, what, what little conflict am I fighting with myself? Or how am I struggling right now? How would I articulate that? And then as you're able to see it, very much in the act thing, then it no longer has the same power over you. And, and it can begin, those energies can start to be metabolized or can be. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, and I think that you guys say this a lot, um, many times in the book, but our brains are really wired for survival and for self-centeredness and for um, pursuit of pleasure. They're not, they're not wired for happiness and they're not wired to kind of, you know, be in the moment and enjoying, you know, what comes in the moment. And so, you know, we don't need to fight with our brains, but I think just recognizing sort of the way that we're wired sort of opens us up to say, okay, well, I can accept the wiring, but also act in a way that allows me to, you know, be in the moment and let go of the things that, that I'm getting caught up in because the getting caught up isn't actually serving me. And so we can kind of recognize just embracing the natural way that we operate, but also deciding what to do with it in a more helpful way. And so I think yeah. that's really what where meditation has a lot of power. Absolutely. That's very well said. I, you know, the, the wiring part of it, uh, I'm really interested in the story of what neuroscience is going to begin to tell us about both how it are, what it's already telling us about how the mind works and, and how med these meditation practices will work. And it's complicated. You know, there's lots of different ways of coming at it. Uh, but I guess the, one of the ways I think about it, and this isn't so much brain-based, but if I had to describe a kind of meta mechanism, is I think about the mind, the, the mind, the job of the mind is to make predictions, you know, to make continuous predictions uh, about how reality is. And it's comparing your present moment against past experience. Because it's, there's this continual prediction making, it's like, in a sense, I think of it as like there's this free stream of reality that we're in. But the mind is constantly trying to freeze it. It's trying to, trying to coagulate the stream of things to, to make comparisons. And it's doing it out of survival reasons. It's doing it just because of habitual identification reasons. It's doing it also because of fear responses, all the different reasons why it's happening. But it means that there's this constant kind of like struggle or tension or attempt to freeze things as they go. And sometimes when I think about the meta practice at a meta level, what it's doing is it's essentially, it's, it's, it's stopping that seizure thing, the natural seizing that happens. It's allowing the, the experience just to unfold and those process to be there without that kind of, without the constant attempt to coagulate the, the stream and freeze, freeze what's going on. Because in the freezing is where all the suffering is, all the tension, all the attempt to kind of hold on to experience. Like think of how much of your suffering is happening because how your present moment experience is unfolding is not how you have an idea or an idea of what, how you want it to be happening. So there's this thing in which you start to like get more and more uh, equanimity. It's really the equanimity skill. First, I mean, you're noticing, but the equanimity is the smoothness and the, the lack of bracing and freezing. And, that, and that, that open allowing starts to kind of trickle down into the nervous system. And it, and it begins to create this more fluid and fluent uh, ease and relationship with uh, your own experience. And I think that's one of the ways I think about the, the, how the practice works. And I think that'll line up. I think that lines up pretty nicely with the neuroscience and, as you say, the other evidence-based stuff. Yeah, yeah. You use this word equanimity so much in the book. How do yeah. you, how do you simply define equanimity? Because I know that that is so critical for you yeah. in terms of what 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 needs to get embodied within mindfulness practice. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. It's this in my mind. It's the super juice. So it's this. I think of this all as as muscle building. You know, you're building up different attentional capacities in a practice, and the most important one in my mind, although concentration is also very important, so is clarity, but Equanimity is the one that really resonated with me because I was so not equanimous. So different people describe it in different ways. What I, I can do is I'll give you a, a brief description of how I would understand it, but then I'll actually guide in a two seconds thing because it's one thing to say it. I can show you right in your experience right now what it is. Awesome. Um, so the way I think of equanimity and I get this more from my teacher Shinzen is it's a kind of, it's a lack of push and pull. So it, um, there's a natural uh, kind of, kind of friction in the nervous system where you're constantly you're kind of like pushing and pulling on experience you're you're bracing against it you're kind of and then the opposite of that is to just be smooth so it's like a lack of impedance or a lack of friction and um, so you could say then there are many synonyms for it there's allowing there's openness there's relaxation in the body 
there's non-judgmentalness in the mind. It's anytime you see a fixation or a coagulation, like a, it's letting go yeah. and backing up and just letting the thing be there. It kind of reminds me of this Taoist concept, and I'm not sure if this is kind of if this fits for you or not. But this Taoist concept of Wu Wei, it's kind of effortless action. Yeah, it's it's absolutely the two map together. I'm massively influenced by Taoism. It's very much exactly. It's like your equanimity is your you go through the world and you notice wherever you're fixated and trying to grab on, trying to control something, and you kind of let the fixated part of it let it let go. So it's very much about being in the Tao, being in the flow, letting things happen. And in, as you're doing that, you become, you, you, you release, you save all this energy because you're not, you're not, all this energy gets bound up in trying to endlessly control and manipulate experience. But if you back up from that and just let things kind of flow and unfold, then when you do need to make a sharp break with something or make a strong boundary or make a very powerful action, all the energy is there to boom, you know? So I think of it as like life is about really, trying to get more energy efficient, much more chilled out in a quantum from moment to moment, letting things kind of unfold as they need to unfold. 95% of us trying to manipulate the situation isn't going to, isn't really necessary. It is actually probably making things worse. And then when we really do need to make a stand on something or make a decision on something, we have the clarity and energy to kind of help with that. Um, so, but just to make it relatable, I was trying to model, I'm trying to model equanimity right now as I talk about it. It's, it's deliberately, if you imagine my words is just kind of floating right through the screen and they're kind of floating right through you, just notice, is there any kind of little bracing or kind of sitting at the edge of your seat and can you kind of take a breath out and relax and just imagine that they're just floating right through you. In fact, all the sounds in your ambient environment now, and if you're a listener, it's the same thing. Just imagine, first of all, let them all be there and imagine they're just sort of floating through you and your own breath is kind of coming and going. And there's just this, you know, equanimity is generally, it's basically relaxation in the body and it's non-grippiness in the mind. And so the whole temperament has a kind of open, it's like just being open. Some people just say, yeah, it feels like being relaxed. It feels like being open, but it's being with and allowing your experience to be there. And then all the, then just things start free flowing more naturally. There's more of a natural free flow. And if you deliberately apply a kind of more targeted equanimity to an emotional reaction, an urge, or whatever, then often that can begin to help discharge some of those energies. It, it kind of it's like the grippiness around it is what keeps it there. But when you're equanimous with it, it then can express itself. So it often gets more intense, but then it can kind of go through its bell-shaped curve and move on. So there's it's it's lack of interference. And and I can see that you just did it right there as your, you know, your 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 body relaxed and Thank you. Um, it sort of harkens back to what we were talking about when we first started um, chatting, that I was admitting that I get very anxious when I start these interviews. And I think it sort of um, ties back to the, the thinking that I have around this, that an interview should be, you know, I, I want to present myself well to the, to the guest. I want to develop a recording that will be interesting to listeners and it puts an intense amount of pressure and I sort of tighten up and exactly that tightening makes it hard for anything to go very well because I can't think clearly and um, you know my 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 actual voice gets very tight and um, you know I think I have a hard time listening because I'm, I'm so caught up in my own worries and it's that sort of like letting go and just being and sort of you know recognizing that my mind goes to that place but but sort of allowing it to to be what it will be but trying to just get comfortable in that place um, and, and you had said that you had some ideas too of, of sort of ways to respond to that but that that equanimity of just kind of letting go, I think really fits in with that experience that I regularly have when I record these interviews. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being so honest about it. That's uh, and I'm very similar. You know, I find I get tense around in situations that are important. Of course I clench up. I want to do a good job. Like I get anxious and, and um, so it's just, I just think it's super helpful to, to share that because you know, it makes it very, very relatable. And what you're saying is absolutely right. The central strategy is around a lot around equanimity it's first of all it's recognizing that that happens and and being you know kind with yourself because you're human welcome to the human condition we all got something so it's kind of going oh yeah here this is happening again can i kind of let go and just like and just because a lot of the so what happens is the more tension you have the more contraction there is the more you amplify that pattern 
suffering equals pain times resistance. Um, so, or any contraction times resistance. So the more there's there, the more there, the more it actually escalates, the harder it is to then be able to be natural. So, so you're kind of going down a feedback loop. It's all feedback loops. So what you want to do is begin to not feed that, that feedback loop. And you, the way you don't, don't, that's what equanimity is. Equanimity is sort of the zero point. It's backing up and allowing something to happen. And now you're not feeding it. And the idea is that w when you don't feed it, the habit energy of it begins to drain out. Now, there's a couple important things, though, or sort of caveats to say around that. Um, uh, and I, I would say the main one is that, so sometimes just noticing that, backing up and relaxing, can, the energy can then just sort of dissipate. And that can actually be the experience. But other times, it actually gets stronger because now you're opening it up and it can be quite strong. And so in a seated practice, the idea is that uh, sometimes you're able to hold, stay with that and it works through. Other times, it's too strong and you have to back up. And if you're going to work with it meditatively, you just titrate in. You go in a little bit and then when it feels like it's uh, getting a little too much, you back up and you pay attention to something else. You go in a little bit more, you back up, pay attention to something else. And then still other times, meditation isn't the right thing for it. Because it's, and this is what happens to me, sometimes the energy comes up, it's too strong, it's too dysregulating, I actually do not have the capacity to be equanimous with the crazy that's coming through me right now, because I've got hypomania, you know, I'm a bit of a bipolar thing too, I get these very, very powerful activations, and I, and I used to just think, oh, I have to just sit and meditate, and I think that I was actually making it worse, because I was subtly fighting with it and resisting it, because I couldn't, it was like having a fire hose pour through me, like the amount of energy coming through, it couldn't happen, it couldn't help but have these little contractions. And then every time I contract around it, it would just amplify it. So what I learned from for dealing with intense, intense activations for me, whether it's intense anger, uh, intense anxiety, um, kind of more the, the manic grandiosity stuff that can come through, uh, intense desolation. For me, I need to actually get up off the cushion and I need to be doing either a movement thing like I like to go for a walk or nature, or I need to talk to somebody like you, talk to a friend, talk to a therapist and say, because there's something about the container of a relationship that is uniquely beautiful to what psychotherapy is. There is a, that relationship is there, by the way, when you're sitting in community to a certain degree, and it can be there in relationship to the guided voice of a practice. But sometimes we need someone else to help us create that container. And so for me, there are things that can happen when I just talk to my wife or a friend, and I'm doing the same thing. I'm connecting with what I'm feeling. I try to express it. That's equanimity in another mode. It's the expressive side of equanimity, but it's being in relationship is what allows that me to work with that. Then, then once things have settled, I can go back to a, my sitting practice. Yeah, and I have to just give you guys, you and Dan Harris and Carly Adler, um, your co-authors, so much um, credit for presenting meditation in such a flexible way. So that's what I've really loved about um, the first 10% Happier book and then this more recent book that you guys have, the Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics book, because it really it really sort of brings a lot of flexibility into like how you can understand meditation and also how you can practice it, that it doesn't have to be sort of like grinding your teeth through it and it doesn't have to be the center of your world. You can actually uh, welcome in some of the benefits of meditation um, in a whole host of flexible ways. And that's what I really, I love a lot of the meditations that you um, generated in the book because they are so flexible and they are so, um, they're built in ways that kind of fit into the real lives that most people live. You don't have to live in an ashram to do them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, I think that that is, I think a lot of skillful teachers um, think about things in that way. I mean, that doesn't come from us. I mean, there's like um, even the, the, the teachers I mentioned before, Joseph Goldstein, all these others, there has long been, you know, uh, a tradition of trying to make these practices relatable in common sense ways. So that's been there from the kind of can-do American spirit that first introduced these practices really in the culture in the 60s and 70s. But it's definitely the way that I've gone because it's just how it works for me. And um, I have had to get very flexible about how I do it because I, for the reasons I just described, sometimes just the bare bone sitting practice wasn't the right thing for me. And then it also is a natural outgrowth of thinking of it in terms of skill building. If, if fundamentally, because fundamentally what we're doing here, it's all about habits. You know, most of us are kind of just, just existing 
is creating habits. We don't think of things that way, but we're responding and we're thinking and we're being in certain ways. And most of us are just reinforcing unconsciously certain habits. And some of those habits are good, but a lot of them are not good. So it's sort of like practice is, I don't think of it in terms of meditation. I think of it in terms of practice. It, practice is, is about being deliberate about creating habits that you want. So we're at some point in our life, we're going to need to do that or we're going to want to do that for almost all of us. Are gonna, there's a kind of moment where we want to course correct a little bit on certain habits. And then you need a, and a practice is something that does that. Within that, there's a real power of a seated practice. And I can say a little bit about why a seated practice and why meditation is pretty awesome but in a second. But really, it, since we have to be real with where people are at, if you unpack the skills of what's so transformative in a practice and understand what they are, understand how concentration works, how, how awareness and clarity work, how equanimity works, how the friendliness piece works, then you can kind of like reverse engineer meditation and begin to apply those skills in any other activity. Um, and so like, for example, the skill of concentration is all about the skill of, yes, being able to focus on what's important, but really it's about um, being able to more and more having a place in your life where all parts of you can come together and do this one thing. Because that, that's another way in which meditation heals. It's very, it's so healing for the mind and the body just to do one thing well, to be in the flow of a conversation, to be in a sport, in an art, in your work. So you're, when you get in flow, all parts of you come together and there's this innate satisfaction. It's like, oh my, I think you just, if you notice what happens from the meditation point of view, your body gets very relaxed and the mind gets satisfied, but like existentially satisfied. Like there's a kind of almost an ecstasy to, uh, to the simplicity of something. And so somewhere in your life, have something that you do that gives you that quality of merging with your experience because it's so healing for the nervous system. It, everything calms down and things start to, this sort of real peace starts to flow into the nervous system. So whether you get that in walking your dog or being in nature or being in conversation, know that that's what's happening there and be more deliberate about cultivating the one-pointedness of that. That would be the way to bring concentration out into other spheres. And similarly, you can bring the awareness and equanimity out by just knowing what those skills are. And as you're entering into a walking practice, a, a relational thing, you're kind of noticing, you're just the awareness piece is the clarity piece is noticing. Oh, how am I at this moment? What am I? What part of my experience is fixated, and can I let go of that? And that can begin to cultivate more and more equanimity in whatever you're doing. Um, the reason we do a seated practice, the reason I still do seated practices, is because it's the simplest possible condition. It's the easiest place to know that you're not fooling yourself. You know, there are the least amount of distractions. It's you're you're right up against the dynamics of mind when you're sitting. So you can learn much more intimately what it feels like to be concentrated, what it feels like to be equanimous, what it feels like to be clear, what it feels like to be friendly. You, you're, you're kind of seeing that in real time. So it's sort of like the, I think of it as like the gym where you get the kind of pure workout and then you can apply it in other places. Yeah. But if you don't have time to do the gym, then just know what the machines are and then try <laughs> to apply them in the other, in the other domain to mix my metaphors kind of horribly. I hope that So before before we end, I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on on the technology piece of meditation because you know you write a lot about how important community is and how sort of connecting with other people within the community can be for your individual practice. But technology, you know, on the one hand brings a lot of distance, and then on the other hand offers just a really different pathway to community. And I'm just curious, sort of, what you think about this idea of using technology versus in-person trainings to support meditation practices, because you know I think that the 10% Happier app is is wonderful, but it's sort of like, and you know I don't know that research has really uh, teased this apart, but it's an interesting question. Like, how do the two compare? Like, what what is it like to go to a meditation retreat versus to get very dedicated to a daily practice with an app. Yeah. Uh, well, what I would say about, I mean, I think a lot about this and I think uh, I would start with the big picture, which is that, um, you know, we're living through an era of unprecedented mental health crisis, period. That's happening. You know, teen suicide is through the roof, like levels of stress and reactivity, levels of mental illness across the board. You know, we are living in a very intense time, and that's very much related to what's happening in our environment. I mean, that you can't extract the two. So we need technologies for mental health. 
We need interventions and strategies for how to create helpful practice. That's the big picture. So Absolutely. that means that there are going to be in, uh, forums and mediums that are, uh, there's a whole continuum of what's going to be more effective and what's going to be a little bit less effective. And all of these strategies are important. So we have to take what we can get. Yeah. So, and I, I personally think that um, being practicing, so even just saying that, like there are some people who can sit and practice alone and it's absolutely fine. It's the right thing for them. They're more a loner type. You know, other people are really deeply helped by practicing in community. I'm one of those people. Like this feeling of being in relationship to people creates a container for me that really helps me go deeper. And that is, I primarily get that in person. So I have the Conscious Explorers Club that I do. And I'm actually, I've written a whole community practice guide. It's called Community Practice Activation Guide. It's all for whoever you are in any, any city. It, it's trying to, trying to empower people to start up their own local practice group. To and I in. saw that on your website and we'll link to it because it, it's really yeah. cool. I'd love to talk more about that, but I won't for a second. But I mean, it, there's something very powerful about sitting in community uh, for lots and lots of reasons. Um, but uh, I will have to say, like, you know, uh, in terms of the app thing, I, I previously, I meditate with a guided practice. I find it helpful sometimes. So I found that be useful. There's lots of apps that are free to offer you a free guided practice. I kind of more prefer doing it in silence, but I love, I love guiding with, I love exploring how different people guide. But this Tempest, lately I've been doing this Tempest and Happier Challenge. I told I think I said this off the top, for the past week and a half, they asked me to do this New Year's challenge with them. And so what that means is they said, they sent out to all the people who listened to my guided practices, hey, Jeff's going to do this. You can be his friend if you want. And then they managed the friend requests or whatever. But I have like 800 friends who meditate with me now or whatever mm. it is. Now and that's a community. <laughs> I mean, I've got to say what's so weird about this is when I sat down for the first time thinking, oh, I'm going to do this to support all these people. The opposite happened. I was like, I almost, like I teared up. I felt so supported seeing all those little dots of people meditating with me, knowing that at the same time here, I was part of a network of people who were meditating, that we were all doing this. I, that, it, it really made me feel supported in my practice. So, and that happened through an app. And I'm not just saying this because I'm on 10% Happier. You can get that through Insight Timer, which is free. You can see who else is meditating with you. I think the idea of, I think an app can connect you to a community. It doesn't have to be in person. There is a sense in which an app or a virtual community can be real community. Like I don't, and you have to do the experiment for yourself and see if you feel that. For some people, it may not be. For others, it may be. Now, that doesn't, in my mind, offset the dangers of technology and the dangers of having a phone. And like, I really struggle with this in all the cliched ways, not cliched, all the well understood ways in which these devices shatter our attention. They don't give us peace, the endless notifications. The, there are so many genuine things that are wrong with all the time we spend on screens. So... But I guess my, I mean, I have a talk on my, somewhere on my thing about how it, it says, it's like, first we make brains, then we make love or something. It's all about the role of technology in the mind. And my thing is that these are very potentially destructive things, but they're also opportunities in the sense that they capture attention. And once we understand that the interface and technology can capture attention and lead it into unhappy habits, we could also use that understanding to say, well, maybe we can start to design interfaces that don't, that lead into healthy habits. That are, that are somehow about, and I think it would have to do more with an embodied quality of relating to things like so the, the touch screens or the, even the, some kind of three-dimensional thing. But how can we start to create technology interfaces that actually build equanimity, build concentration, build clarity, and don't just build fixation and addiction and all the rest of it? Those, and I know those are questions actually some technologists are thinking about. So um, that would be a larger answer to what you're saying, I guess. Yeah. Like, yeah. yes, I'd be worried about it. Do the experiment. If having, if all you can do is find an app, great. See how that helps you. Um, I would also try to find a local group that you could occasionally sit with um, and see and compare and see if that helps you too. And then, yeah. And I can say more about the in-person stuff too because, you know, there's a lot to say there about, and I write it in the community resources guide about why meditating in community is so valuable. I mean, a lot of it, it part of it is that you're pooling wisdom. So other people have different challenges. And as you begin to share about what those are, people can share strategies, interventions. You know, you, you can get so much more good wisdom in a group of different nervous systems than you can in just a single nervous system who happens to be, have a lot of experience. So you need both those. You need people with experience and you need different people. <laughs> you know, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sort of speaks to like the, the utility of having like a diverse set of experiences. And I think um, the way that I kind of take it as some, so I'm a working parent and I have a hard time making it out to anything. So for me, I've actually defaulted to the apps, even though um, in theory, I would like to, because I am somebody who gets a lot out of the relational and the community pieces of, you know, connecting with other people around things that are important and and meditation would be one of them. Um, But just due to like sheer time constraints and logistical constraints, um, I have been, you know, relying on apps to sort of build my own practices and I find them useful and I find them to have, you know, significant drawbacks too, um, because it, it is like, you know, one more way that I'm connected to my phone. It also, I actually, I hate the reminders because they feel like pressure to me. And I, for me, it sort of just makes me a little resentful, but I don't know to, yeah. towards whom, but um, for me, that, that part I don't like, but I, I see it as sort of another opportunity to just build flexibility. You know, you take the, you take what you can get from that piece of technology and then try to um, complement it with other kinds of experiences that can offer, you know, whatever the app or, or whatever that particular resource can't offer. And I think that's a bit of what you're speaking to, that it's sort of good to, you know, use things for what they can offer, but also recognize that, you know, each entity has its own limitations. Yeah, definitely. And, and I would, so that's exactly how I think about it. I mean, you just nailed it. It's like, it's, you got to make do with the tools that you have. And for some people that may be, it, and also recognize that different people need different things. So some people, that, it may be just the thing for them. But if, if you never actually go and spend time with someone who does have a lot of experience in meditation and hear reports from other people talking kind of in a very honest way about what things, what, what, what they're experiencing, what their challenges are, what the insights are, it's just a different thing. It's like it makes it so much more palpable. And then in turn, being able to go on a retreat once in a while, it's like any, the more you, it, it's, it's like an iceberg. You know, you can have an intellectual, there's the tip of the iceberg is your intellectual understanding of why this is good for you. And then you start to go down the iceberg, you start to, it starts to get into your nervous system more. You start to know it's true and feel it's true. But even then, it, the iceberg just keeps going and going and going and going. These things that you think you know what they mean, you think you know what letting go means intellectually. You think you know what um, cause and effect means in terms of, oh, I have this thought and it leads to this feeling. And, but you, you can know it and you can really know it. And then you can really, really know it. And then you can really, really, really know it. It's like you start to see how deep, the, how these principles are these profound things that apply in this very pervasive way. And the longer you practice, the more you get, the broader the insight you get and, uh, and the simpler the truth that you're understanding. And you can't get, you can maybe get that if you're all alone at home, only working with an app, you know, over time. Sure. Why not? It could happen. But it, you can accelerate the development of those insights, I think, by being in community and doing the rounds of the community and hearing other perspectives and then actually having opportunities to go deeper and longer into practices where yeah. you really get a palpable now sense of what they're talking about. And, and the, the insights, the freedom gets, it's no longer this, this thing that's, that stays around a little bit or you get a little flicker of an insight. It's a deep thing that stays with you for a long time and eventually for life. Yeah. Yeah, I have not ever been on a retreat, but that's something that I'd be really interested in. But but for now, I you know I read a lot and I listen to a lot of podcasts and I use the apps. And then I also just try to um, build uh, sort of relationships around meditation, not necessarily with other people meditating, but what I've tried to do as a, as a parent is sort of bring a meditative quality to the time that I spend with my kids or with my spouse. And, and that for me has been really enriching and no, kind of, awesome. you know, harkens back to like the, some of the um, recommendations that you give in the book in terms of, you know, bringing that sort of attention and concentration to, to your, you know, daily lived life. How old are your kids? Um, I have a two, six and eight. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> got a lot of little guys there. Yeah, well, if you're ever, if you could ever get a, if you could ever get a pass for a weekend, um, I I'm doing my first ever American retreat in, in early May. I think it's on the Omega Institute website. It's on my website, so I'm going to try to get word out to people who like Boston, New York community, because I think there's a certain number of spots there, and and it's really going to be all the stuff we talked about, trying to make make it super accessible fun weekend, but try to really give people a bit of a sense of the flavor of what it means to start to submerge into these 
things, but all in a skill building, chilled out way. <laughs> Hopefully, you know. That yeah. sounds awesome. And if you have a link to um, the sign up, we can also post it on our blog and and in the show notes. So that'd be nice. So between that and then your current project of of sort of getting this. Um, idea of teaching how to teach meditation out to the community and um we you just like briefly touched on that well yeah i mean so we talk about we're all in our own life development process so the the idea creative process that i'm in right now is around given what we know about the challenges facing the world and how severe these mental health challenges are um it seems to me that we need more and more of the sharing of these practices so how can we empower people to share these practices in a safe way? The idea that you have to be some perfect meditation teacher with like five years of deep training and like, and then you've had to have all these things before you can actually impart a meditation seems to me preposterous. And it's actually just impossible. It's a situation we just don't have enough people to go around. So there has to be a kind of more, I'm interested in this middle step of acknowledging the role and the value of a professional teacher and, and, and how valuable that training is, of course but also saying that when it comes to the basics of self-regulation, um, that it's, these things are too fundamental and too important to be left to experts only. That just like we can learn how to cook for ourselves and we learn how to exercise in a safe way or how to swim, and we didn't learn those from a professional swimming coach, you can learn how to the basics of how to guide a simple practice in a way that's honest about who you are and your limitations. And so that's the, the kind of creative inquiry I'm in right now. Like, what would that look like? So I have a weekend that I just, I've, I've started developing. I've done it once in Ottawa. I've done a, a short version in Toronto. I'm doing a longer version in Toronto in April. It's a, it's a Friday night and a Saturday and a Sunday. So it's like 16 hours. And we just try to teach them everything we can about what's valuable and what's important in this practice. What is the inner game of guiding? And we help them develop their own practice that's true to them that they can guide. And they go through iterations of actually workshopping that. And that's where the, um, the Conscious Explorers Club um, Community practice, practice activation kit is part of it. It has all information about how to guide to practice safely and what that looks like. But this course is really the hands-on part, and it goes even more deep than that. And yeah, that sounds awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you're super busy, and I just am, it, it was such an honor to speak with you after sure. reading and reading so much of your work. And, and honor to speak with you. <laughs> so you're doing great work. I got you in this podcast. It's awesome. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.